And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It was evening and it was morning the third day. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, give us understanding. As you begin to form creation and we read about it, these words from you, by your Spirit's power, through Moses, down through the ages to us. Lord, help us to understand what's happening here. Help us to know better who you are as we look at this. Yes, it's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if our, um, our sermon series on Genesis were a book, then last week would be kind of the, the introduction to the book. We introduced those, those major themes that we're going to be seeing throughout Genesis. God's unrivaled sovereignty, his kingship is clear in Genesis. Whenever you read the, uh, anything about creation later on in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, read Psalm 74, for instance. Read Psalm 104. When you read the Psalms, you're going to see God's creation power proclaiming his kingship. That's the way that we are to understand it. So God's unrivaled sovereignty. We also see God's grace beginning. We saw that last week. And we see his provision. So these are the big themes. If you watch movies, there's always kind of a, if you like movie soundtracks, you know, there's a theme that goes across throughout the movie, but then there are individual scenes. Those, God's unrivaled sovereignty, God's grace and provision, that's the soundtrack that you hear in each stage. So we'll be listening for that. That was the introduction. And if this week, uh, if, if all of this is a book, then this week is, is chapter one of the book. And, and if it's chapter one, then we've got some groundwork to do uh, as we settle into our study of Genesis together. Um, I, I know, first of all, I'm going to go and get this out of the way. I know that you have questions about Genesis. Okay? We all do. We have lots of questions about these, especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, Josh and Dustin, in our, in our sermon review last week, or Sunday review, they said, just go ahead and tell you the answer, or the questions that I'm not going to answer. And I think that's a good idea. 
So, so if, if you're looking for me in this series or in these next couple weeks to tell you how old the earth is, just go ahead and accept, I don't know. Okay? And, and, and I'm going to take a step further and tell you I don't believe that the Bible actually answers that question for us. So, so it could be that the earth is very young. Certainly possible. It could be less than 10,000 years old. It could be a much older earth. I don't believe Genesis 1 tells us exactly. So if, if you're wondering, uh, it, when did God create the angels? So if you've come here looking for an answer to that question, I can take some guesses, but not with enough confidence to actually answer out loud. Okay, so, so you can hold on to that question. Finally, I see a lot of new faces here who, who must have found out that we were preaching Genesis. You have come here to find out about the dinosaurs, haven't you? <laughs> well, they probably fit into day six, but we're not going to talk about the dinosaurs. Uh, or what happened to the dinosaurs, or if there actually even were dinosaurs, because Genesis 1 is not about the dinosaurs. It's not about meteors. It's not about ice ages. Genesis 1 is about three things. Three. Here we go. It's about God, it's about the earth, and it's about humanity. So, so number one, it's about God. We talked about that last week. It starts with God, and, and when you look down, just look at your page. You see that G-O-D over and over again, he's almost in every verse. God said, and God saw, and God called, and God said, and God made, and God set, and God created. Over and over and over and over again throughout chapter 1, God is the one speaking, God is the one acting, God is the one approving of creation. So it's ultimately about him, isn't it? Genesis 1, we would say, is theocentric. It's about God. God is the center. Theo, God-centric, center. It's theocentric. It's about God. And our attention, as we read it, is rightfully drawn to him. He's the subject. But it's also about earth. You can see that, can't you? God is doing something here. That's why it's written down for us. What's he doing? Well, he's creating. And what's he creating? He's creating earth. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Not Mars. The earth. Mars is still formless and void. Did you see the pictures from the Curiosity rover this week? It's very formless. It's very void. In our passage today is all about how God begins to form the earth. He brings light to the earth. He brings atmosphere to the earth. He brings land and sea and plant life to the, to, to the earth, all for the express purpose of making the earth habitable. So Genesis 1 can also be said to be about the earth. It is geocentric. The earth is the center of of God's creative attention. It is the center of the author's focus. It's not the center of the universe, but it is the center of the text. Next week, beginning on day four, God will begin to fill creation. And the filling of creation and the earth we'll all see is moving towards a specific purpose. All of the stuff that God puts on the earth and in the earth, the way that he organizes the earth, is moving towards making the earth habitable for humanity. That's the third subject of Genesis 1, humanity. It's about the creation of humanity. And in particular, humanity as the image bearers of the subject of Genesis 1, God. 
Humanity is the, the crown jewel in the king's crown. Humanity is the direction that creation is moving towards. It's the, crea- it's, it's the direction that Scripture is moving towards. Humanity and then the human, Christ. God creates a suitable place in which to establish humanity. So Genesis is also anthropocentric. Anthropos, man-centric, central. Right? Genesis then teaches us about who God is, what the earth is for, and what humanity is for. Those are the three things that we learn, especially in Genesis 1 through 11. And that knowledge influences what questions we ask. We're only going to be asking and answering the questions that relate to those three subjects because those three subjects are what it's about. So we're going to approach Genesis the same way that we approach any other book of the Bible. We're going to look, when we're looking to understand the message of any book of the Bible, we always ask two really important questions. What is the human author's intent and what is the divine author's intent? So the human author of Genesis is Moses. We know that because Jesus told us that Moses wrote Genesis, so I'm going to go with his opinion on this. In fact, all of the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses. So we know that from the rest of Scripture, but we also know that Moses wasn't alone in writing these first five books. How do we know that? Because the rest of Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit was leading Moses as he wrote this. Peter tells us Moses was led along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote these things, just like all the prophets were. And that makes sense, right? Because Moses is writing down things that he wasn't there to witness. So somebody had to tell them, tell him what, what it was he was supposed to write about things that he wasn't there to witness. So Genesis, like every other book of the Bible, has two authors. Moses, the human author, and God, the divine author. Sometimes, when we're trying to understand Genesis, Moses will tell us how we are to understand something that he's written. And so we'll use that as an interpretive tool. The author just told us how to understand this. Well, that's what we're going to go with. Sometimes we'll have to look outside of Genesis. We'll look to other books that the same author has written to understand what he's written in Genesis. So we can look to Exodus, and we'll do that today. We can look to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, since they're also written by Moses. We'll see some of the same themes carrying through all five books, and those themes help us understand what was written there in Genesis. Sometimes Moses doesn't, in any of those five books, tell us how to understand the text. But that's okay, because the Holy Spirit, through other human authors, will teach us how to understand the text. So that's why we look to the rest of the Bible to teach us how to read and understand Genesis. Or, as we often say, with every other book of the Bible, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So, for instance, I just told you that humanity is the crown jewel of creation. Where did I get that from? Why do I say that Genesis 1 seems to be focused on humanity? Well, Genesis 1 seems to be building towards that structurally as we look at the text, but Psalm 8 tells us that explicitly. Psalm 8, 5 through 8, yet you have made him, son of man, human, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So what is the psalmist telling us? Humanity is the, the express purpose of creation. It's building towards the Son of Man who would rule over all things. Well, why do I break up this passage? As you've noticed, I've, been, I've broken it up. The, the forming of the earth, days one through three, and the filling of the earth, days four through six. Where did I get that from? I didn't make it up. I, I see it in this structure, but Isaiah tells me that's how I'm supposed to read Genesis. Look at Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no other. See what's happening there? What does Isaiah tell us about Genesis? God created the world. The, the creation story is meant to show us he made it to be inhabited. That's the point of the text today. We'll see that. Another little bit of preliminary discussion as we get into uh, the book of Genesis there's this question. We know that Moses wrote it. We know that the Holy Spirit was, was guiding him. But Moses was an old guy when he died. And so we kind of have to ask, what, at what point in Moses' life did he write this down? When did Moses write these things down? And the reason why I ask that question is because understanding that helps us understand his intent in what he wrote. Right? So if you read something that I wrote when I was seven, you might interpret that differently than when I wrote it if I was 37, right? That, that, a different life stage, different understanding of the world. So, so my, my growth influences my writing. Same thing with Moses. Um, we, we know that Moses wrote Genesis and, and the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books, Penta, five, rest of the, the, the five books. He wrote it all down after he was called by God. Now, why do I say that? Well, because when he was called by God at that burning bush, we read about that in Exodus, that's when he was commissioned as a prophet. It doesn't make sense that he would be writing on behalf of God before he had been commissioned by God to write on behalf of God, right? So it's sometime after that burning bush incident is when he wrote Genesis down. And it's before God's people went into the promised land, all right? So if you read the first five books, you're going to see God's people called out and put into Egypt, and then brought out of Egypt, and they're moving into the promised land. Moses doesn't get to go there with him, so he must have written these things before they went in. So it's sometime during or after the exodus and before the entry into the promised land, sometime in that wilderness wandering is when Moses wrote these things. All of these first five books are written for God's people who are preparing to enter the promised land. So Genesis through Deuteronomy, all of it gives God's people clarity and confidence in God. It defines who they are. They understand who they are in a relationship to God. Genesis tells them where they came from and where they're headed. It gives, it gives God's people a theological understanding of their history, their present, their future. And that should help all of us with a framework for how to understand Genesis. That's how I'm going to preach it. I'm going to teach each passage according to what the message of each passage is. 
that we're going to interpret it through Scripture's lens, not through creation's lens. And you'll see what I mean as we move our way uh, through, especially these first 11 chapters. So what's the, the message of our passage this morning? Verses 3.13. Well, as I said, God is preparing the earth for humanity. He's forming the earth. He's preparing the earth to put humans there. His image bearers. Meanwhile, we have the ongoing themes that we introduced last week. He's doing what he's doing so he would be made known so that he would be glorified. So all of that, the big umbrella, God is making himself known. He's making his glory known. And then specifically this week, he's forming the earth for humanity. So let's look at verses 3 through 5 as we start this week. And God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. It was evening. There was morning the first day. So what's going on here? Is this just God making the sun? It's not. It's not. I mean, that would make sense to our modern sensibilities. If we're looking at this as the, the solar system being formed then we would think, well, you, you start with the sun because the earth has got to have something to revolve around. You've got to have something that makes day and night. But if you keep reading all the way to verse 14, and I know some of you have read ahead, um, you'll find that the sun and the moon and the stars are not created until day four. So this light here on day one is not coming from the sun. Nor is it coming from any other named source. It simply is, according to God's declaration. There was no light, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then he named it. He called the light day. But that's also problematic for us, isn't it? Because days, as we know them, are a result of the earth's revolution on its axis and the length of a day is determined by how long it takes for the earth to make a full rotation. But there's no sun here. There's nothing for the earth to relate to in its spinning to bring days and nights. Again, not only is light simply light, it just is, so is a day. It just is. Well, there's a couple ways that we can approach this to, to understand it. We can approach this from a 1700s and onward perspective, what we call a naturalist perspective. And we can also approach it with a pre-1700s perspective, which is, I would call it a theological, the right perspective. Okay? So, so the naturalist perspective begins with creation. Now, where did we begin last week? With God. So we already know this is wrong. But the naturalist perspective begins with creation and says because we observe that the earth is rotating on its axis and because we observe that it, it is being gravitationally pulled around an orbit around the sun, therefore it must always have been this way. So as soon as there is light, that light's relationship to the earth and the spinning of the earth become the source of day and night. So, so a naturalist approach to this passage is to say the light must be coming from something. There, if it's not the sun, there must be some temporary substitute, some unnamed placeholder 
that's creating the light or that's, that's emanating the light. In other words, when God said let there be light, he must have created a temporary sun that's not called the sun. And that would be the, what gives earth its center around which to orbit, and that's what would give earth its light and its heat. But here's the problem. That is taking a modern way of observing creation and imposing that back onto Scripture. This Scripture was not written for a people who held these presumptions. They, they did not have the presumption that the earth spun on its axis and held an elliptical orbit. Their question is not the methodology of creation. They were not asking a scientific query of God. Their question is, again, just like last week, it is the who of creation. Who made it? It's a theological query. Don't forget that Genesis 1 is primarily about God. That's what this is all about. God is great, he's creator, he is sovereign king over all things. That's the message. So where does the light come from? The point of the text is that the light comes from God. The way that the Israelites would have read this is that God is ultimately the source of light and dark. The sun is not the source of light, ultimately. And that's important. Because in the Egyptian world that they were coming out of, and in the Canaanite world that they were going into, all of the people around them believed the sun to be a god. And the sun god's power was made known in the light and the heat that he was putting out. Now, what's happening here? There's light and there's heat. That will make all life possible, but there is no physical source. There's nothing here that anyone could mistake for something to worship. Nothing but God himself. Light has been spoken into existence by God. It just exists now. It is God's sovereign and attentive power that sustains light and makes it possible. And this same God is God over the darkness. Whether the light is shining or the light is not shining, God is still God, isn't he? He's God at night. He's God at day. He's God all the time. In fact, he is the God of time. Even before there was sun for the earth to revolve around, he created day and night. Day and night are not defined. This is important. Day and night are not defined by the earth's spinning. They are defined by God. He created them. He named them. They predate the sun. And that tells us then that the naturalist's explanation of the day teaches the opposite of what the text is teaching us. The text says that light and dark and day and night come from God. But the naturalist explanation, and, and this is, if, you, if you're thinking, well, nobody believes this. Yes, they do. This is what creation scientists teach. So if you went to answersingenesis.org, this is what you would find. They would say that the light and the dark and the day and the night come from the phenomena of the earth spinning around a light source. In other words, they're, they're echoing, and these guys are brothers, and sisters in Christ, okay? So I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not Christians. 
but they have, they have given too much credence to the naturalist worldview, and they've allowed that to fog their understanding of Scripture. They're reverting back, unknowingly, to the pagan understanding of creation. And they're giving the authority of control over night and day to creation itself and not to God. And that's where we have to be careful because the text teaches that God is the one who controls the day and the night and the light and the darkness. Not some created source. Not yet. Not until day four. Okay, so we need to think like ancient Israelites here. We need to be okay with this. Are you okay with this? Light existing without a physical source? Because that's what the Bible's telling us. And, and this, is, this is not just Genesis 1. We see this in the Exodus as well. Remember, written by Moses, so that's important. Moses continues with this understanding throughout his writings. In the Exodus, when God is redeeming his people from slavery under Pharaoh the tyrant, we see a lot of talk about light and dark. And so that... that Seeing light and dark and light and dark in the Exodus should help us read Genesis because that helps us understand what the author's intent is. So there is the, the curse of darkness on Egypt on, uh, on, and the ninth curse, the ninth plague. And everywhere across the land, it is pitch black for three days. Everywhere in Egypt, except in the places that the Israelites lived. Now, how was that? Exodus 10, 22 through 23. Let me read it for you. Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now, this is not an eclipse. All right, so if you want to try to find a naturalist explanation of what's happening here, you will not find it with an eclipse. An eclipse can't do that. Eclipses don't last three days. Nor do they have little holes in them that allow light just on, on one. That's just not, that doesn't make any sense. There is something supernatural happening here. God has brought darkness by his own power over darkness through his own means to Egypt. And he's brought light to the place of the Israelites. In the same land. How did he do that? The text doesn't tell you. Or me. Because the question is not how. The question is who? Who did it? And the answer is God did it, and that's what matters. God used the same power that he showed at creation to distinguish between his enemies and his chosen people. He judged Israel's enemies with darkness, and he showed his people favor with light. And that same thing happens as they're leaving Exodus, in Exodus four, or leaving Egypt. In Exodus 14, God is bringing his people out of the land. Pharaoh is finally Submitted to God's authority. They end up at the edge of the sea. They're pinned down now. Pharaoh changed his mind. And they're pinned down by Egypt's army at their backs and the sea in front of them. The people are freaking out. But then what happens? God intervenes. He separates the waters. Now, that's creation power, isn't it? We're about to see that. God separates the waters to make a way for his people. And then he leads the peoples through the waters on dry land. And then look what happens in verses 19 and 20. I'm going to read it for you. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud 
and the thick darkness. Remember, the cloud is by day, the darkness is behind them. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Kind of confusing, but, but just let me summarize it. God moves from being in front of his people, delivering them out, to behind his people, protecting them. Now God stands between Israel in the front and Egypt behind. In the front of God is light. And Israel is in the light. Behind God is darkness. And Egypt is in the darkness. What's happening? God is separating the light from the darkness. Which is exactly what we see in Genesis 1-4, isn't it? And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Who separated? God did. God is in the light and God is in the darkness. God is providing for his people in the light. God is protecting his people and judging their enemies through the darkness. What God is doing here on day one is establishing not just, not only the physical phenomena of darkness and light, but we, we've got to expand our understanding of creation. It's not just the creation of the physical. We have to think beyond that. Creation is more than the physical. God is creating more than the physical reality of lightness and dark. He's also establishing the very principles of lightness and dark. Light literally and physically makes the earth habitable. It makes life possible. But when you read the Bible, and we would spend weeks doing this, if you were to read the Bible from here on out, you would see that light symbolically is the realm of God's provision and blessing. We could spend days seeing that theme repeated again and again. Light is the realm of God's provision and blessing. In darkness, it's of course nighttime. It is the absence of light, but because it is the absence of light, it is understood to be the absence of God's blessing, which is to say it is synonymous with God's judgment. And yet, what does Genesis 1 teach us? God is present in the light. He is present in the darkness. He created the light. He created the darkness. He is Lord over them both. And we see that theme in Scripture, Psalm 18. Verse 11, God makes darkness his covering and his canopy, which is to say God is in the darkness. In Psalm 104, God covers himself with light, as with a garment. You guys know that Chris Tomlinson? He wraps himself in light. Okay. That's from Psalm 104. In Psalm 74, the day belongs to the Lord and the night belongs to the Lord. That's the message that we're seeing here. That's how Scripture understands Genesis 1. The point is that God is to be trusted because he is good and he is righteous. He is light. But God is to be feared because he is good, and he is righteous and holy, and he is judge. God is king. That means he provides and prepares the land like a good king would do. And he judges like a righteous king. He is to be trusted. 
He is to be feared. Both light and darkness come from God. He is Lord over light and darkness. That's why we read Psalm 139 today. In Psalm 139, David is, is, is proclaiming, first of all, God is, God is God over the light. He's God over the darkness. No matter where David goes, if he's out in the sea, God is there. If he's in the depths of the earth and the darkness, God is there. In the daytime, God is there. Day and night, God is there. Because God is Lord over light and darkness day and night. And this is where the application comes for us. Because God is Lord over all, the day and the night, the lightness and the dark, David has the confidence, David has the faith to ask God to protect him from his enemies. Because he knows that, that God is Lord over his enemies. And, and he pleads with God, judge my enemies. Because they're your enemies, God. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Where does he get that confidence to ask something so boldly? Because he knows that the Lord is Lord of the light and he's Lord over even David's enemies. Because God is God over all, he has power and authority. He is king over all. That's what day one teaches us. That's what day one is about. So now that the goodness of light has been established, now that we know God is the source of light and goodness, let's go on to the second act of separating. It's the second verb that we see God doing here. Or, well, he's separating day and night. He's calling, he's naming it, and then he's separating the waters. So let's look at that. Verse 6, and God said, and, and God said, that, that what we call is fiat action. He speaks and it happens. That, is, that absolute authority of God's words is characteristic of who God is. He's God most high, and because whenever he says anything, it happens, it is clear that he is king over all creation. He speaks, and it happens. I coach Little League. I do not have that ability. <laughs> and it is good for me to realize that I'm not God, isn't it, Luke? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good. So verse 6, he said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And then verse 7, and God made the expanse. So he says it, and he makes it. He made the expanse. It separates the waters that were under from the waters that are above, and it was so. God speaks, and it happens. God is sovereign. He has ultimate authority. Another example of God's authority here, though, I just hinted at this, is in the naming of the things that he makes. So not only does God say it, and it is so, but God is the one who names these things. Now, I don't know, what, I don't know if he was speaking in English. He probably wasn't. Uh, the Hebrew text certainly seems to imply that God was not speaking and naming in English. Uh, God called the expanse heaven. See that? He's naming it. There was evening and there was morning the second day. This is the second time that God has named something. He created light and darkness and he named it day and night. Now he creates the separation between the waters. He calls it heaven. And then he's going to separate the waters and the land's going to come out. He's going to call that earth. God is naming things. And you think, well, okay. No big deal. But what that means is he has dominion. When God names something, it's showing his dominion, his authority over it, his kingship. And then what is interesting is he's going to create man, and he's going to take that, that 
responsibility and privilege of naming, and he's going to give that to man. That's why this matters, because this is moving us towards understanding who we are. Right now, God is naming everything. He has dominion over everything, but soon he's going to delegate that dominion to his image bearers. Well, there's something else interesting here about day two. In the same way that we cannot view day one from a naturalist, creation science perspective, neither can we approach day two this way. Look, look back at verse seven. The way that Moses describes this separation is waters above and waters below. And the image that he uses is there, there's some sort of shield here. If you have a King James, it says firmament. A shield, or think of it as, as a roof stretched out. And that roof over the earth, kind of like the roof over a house, it, it holds up the waters above. And then everything below the, the roof or that shield is habitable space. Well, we can't take this super literally, can we? Because <laughs> that's not the way things are. That's, that's just, even the Israelites would have known this is not the way things are. This is, there's something else going on here. We know, and the Israelites knew, water evaporates and it is held in the air as humidity. Moist, warm air can hold a lot of water. It forms clouds. Eventually, they, 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 they grow full of water and they drop it. There's no shield. There's nothing above the earth that holds water up in the sky. The Israelites knew this. All right, they weren't dumb. They, they knew that there were not windows in the sky that occasionally opened and water poured out. So why does Moses describe it this way? Well, you have to understand the context again, right? In the mythology of the Canaanites, remember that's always our context. In the mythology of the Canaanites, there was a story that the skin of one of the defeated gods was stretched out and used to create a roof above, to separate the waters above from the waters below. So what's happening here in the description of day two is that God is again revealing to his people that the Canaanite religion is wrong. All right? It's wrong. The sky above is not made out of a defeated God. The sky was made by the one true God. By his absolute authority, he spoke it into existence. That's the key. God speaks it into existence. He created it from nothing. Therefore, the Canaanite gods are not gods at all. They are not to be feared. They are not to be worshipped. The one true God is God. The Lord God is the only true God. The Lord God created the skies. That means God created the place from where the rains come. And this is, this is where this gets important. It means God alone is the one who is in charge of the rains. Not Baal, not Marduk, not any of the other false gods. God alone. And we see this. Throughout Scripture, Psalm 135, for I know the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, I know the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. How does, how does the psalmist know this? Because whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the sea and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, 
who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. It doesn't say he opens up the sky windows, but the rains come from the clouds, and they know that. And the point here is that God is God over that aspect of creation. Jesus taught us this too. Matthew 5.45, Your Father who is in heaven makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good, and he's the one who sends rain on the just and the unjust. Where do the rains come from? God. How do we know that? God created it. He's Lord over it. There are no rivals to him. So not only is God the creator and king over the light and the darkness, day one. Day two, God is creator, Lord and king over the seas and over the rains. Only the Lord is worthy of worship. He is the source of all that is good. He is making a space suitable to pour out the blessings on those that he set his love on, his image bearers. So already, that's what we're seeing here. He's preparing the blessing of life. He created it. And he's going to expend that blessing on his image bearers. And he created the blessing of the waters above in control over the waters below so that he can form those things for his image bearers. The blessings of the rains will come from him. God is the source of blessing. Are you seeing now how this works? All of this is meant to to theologically prepare us for how God will relate to humanity. That's how we need to be reading this. Asking, what is God doing? What's he doing here? What does this tell us about who he is? And it tells us he's our provider. He's our sustainer. He's making a place for his image bearers to live and to multiply and to flourish and fill creation with his glory. So let's get to day three, Genesis 1, 9 through 10. And God said that the waters under the heavens, under, be gathered together into one place, let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. There's that naming again says it, it's so, uh, he calls it, he names it. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, day three, you might have picked up on this, day three is a little bit different than the first two days. In the first two days, God commanded there be light, and there was. And where did that light come from? Nothing. It came from nothing. And then, and then God commanded that there be an expanse between the waters, and there was. And where did that come from? From nothing. Those two elements of creation, much like the heavens and earth, they were created, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, ex nihilo, from nothing. But the third day's work is not from nothing. You see that? He's creating from what already exists. And, and probably a better way to put this is he's not creating so much as he is commanding. He's commanding. So in verse 9, he commands the waters to do what? To gather together. And when the waters do as God says, because that's what things do that God made, that's when the already created land appears. The land was already there. But God's command to the waters makes the land visible and habitable. Now, before we go any further, we've got to see this. The water's creation is obedient to God. The waters are subservient to God. We saw that last week, the Spirit was over the waters, right? But now we're seeing it's not just priority, 
It's not just position, but it is authority. God has authority. He is king over the waters, and he uses that authority to make a place for his image bearers. Now, if you remember back into the Gospel of Matthew, this is one of the ways that we understood that Jesus was king over creation, that he was God. In his earthly ministry, Jesus commanded the waters to be still, and what happened? And they were. Why? Because they heard the voice of their creator. They heard the one who has the authority of God. He he is the one who commands the waters to gather together. And they did. And Jesus was echoing God's creation power in authority. And he was doing that in a way that would provide for his chosen people. All right, so same thing. Let me ask you, though, or we'll look at this for a moment more. If the waters are obedient to God, if they gather together at God's command, then they can also ungather, right, if that's a word. They can, they can spread at his command. And we see that. And we'll see that in Genesis chapter 6, when the flood comes. The flood is brought about by an undoing of days 2 and 3. So he commands that the waters disperse from being gathered, and then there's a flood. And he commands that the waters above reunite with the waters below, and there's, there's absolute catastrophe. That expanse that God created and spoke into being sort of undoes. God releases his sustaining power over creation. And when he does that, he does so in judgment. And the earth no longer sustains life. Same thing with light and darkness. When God brings judgment, it's because he's removing light. He's removing that sustaining power, that blessing. The point is that God has authority and power over creation. And by his power, creation sustains life. And by the removal of that blessing, God brings judgment. So let's bring that into the world today. All right, there's, there's an application here. There's something that has been in the news since the 70s. And it's in Disney movies, and it's in kids' cartoons, and it's in kids' schools. Let's talk about climate change, can we? (laughs) Rolling my sleeves here for a moment. What is the greatest threat that we've been told again and again and again about climate change? Melting polar ice caps and the rising sea levels and the crazy weather. Now let's just for a moment set aside whatever evidence you think there is for or against that phenomena. All right, so I'm not going to get political. I mean, I am, but I'm not. So let's just think of this from a Genesis 1 standpoint, this viewpoint here. The Lord is teaching us here that God commands the waters above and the waters below. And God commands, therefore, the weather, and God commands the seas. And God tells the seas when and how and where to gather together. And God tells the seas when and where and how to spread out. That is God's command, authority that he has over all creation. Okay? God brings forth dry land, and God just as sovereignly and authoritatively put the dry land back underwater. He can sovereignly cover it all back up, and he's done it before. So let me just ask you bluntly, should we fear that guy, or should we fear climate change? It's an easy question, isn't it? 
I'm not asking, should we care for the planet that God has entrusted to us? Of course we should. God has entrusted Christians with the responsibility to show righteous dominion over creation. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks. We, of all people, should care for the creation that God has entrusted to us. But I'm not asking about care for creation. I'm asking, according to Genesis 1, whom should we fear? God who gathers the waters and brings forth dry land or the climate which is subservient to God? Well, your answer, isn't it? We should fear God. The pagans feared the weather because their gods were in the weather. Their gods rode on storm clouds and they brought rain and threw lightning bolts. And their gods were in the flooding rivers and in the tides. And so because they feared those gods, they sacrificed their children to those gods. They would do anything to try to sway those gods. And the modern world really isn't that different, is it? Climate change fanatics believe that our actions can anger the climate gods who bring their vengeance in hurricanes and wildfires and flooding. Therefore, they would say, and they do say, child sacrifice, which is euphemistically known as abortion, is justified because it holds back population growth, and population growth angers the climate gods. We're not that sophisticated, are we? Paganism just takes various forms throughout history. We shouldn't fear the climate. We shouldn't fear climate change. We should fear God. That's the message here. And in the rightful fear of God, we understand God is the source of life. He's righteous. He is good. He is holy. He is worthy of worship. He is provider. He is our sustainer. And all that he has made, he has made for us to have dominion over so that we can and would glorify him through our righteous rule over what he's given us and entrusted to us. That's what this is building towards. But for now, we need to see this. God is sovereign over the oceans. He commands the oceans, polar ice caps, and he sets their limits, and they don't go any further. We are to fear God as the one who provides. But we're also to fear the one who reigns on high as king and judge. All right, so we have God creating and ruling over light and dark. He's providing for life and blessing. God's creating and ruling over the skies above and the waters below. He's providing for life and blessing. And God commands the waters and he's ruling over them to provide for life. Here comes the life, Genesis 1, 11 through 13. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. Trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening and morning, the third day. God is commanding creation, everything. You see it? The waters are commanded to gather and the land comes forth. Now the land is commanded to bring forth vegetation. And the vegetation, again, this is not from nothing. It's commanded to emerge from the earth. God has such spoken power that he makes plants come from rocks. 
Before I moved to Southern California, I had not envisioned this before. Everywhere else I've lived, there was green all the time. Okay? Not here. My yard here gets 100% completely dry and barren by about September, October. Totally nothing there. But then the rain comes, like five months later, like now, and the earth brings forth vegetation as if from nothing. Now, I know that it comes from seeds. I know that. I I can't see the seeds, but the wonder of it just surprises me every year. It is like day three in many ways. I don't have to mow my lawn or pull any weed for nine months, and then suddenly, as if overnight, the weeds are, which is a fall thing, uh, it's as a, a result of the fall, but anyway, it's vegetation, and it's waist high. Uh, overnight, uh, we, we've, you've all experienced this if you have any plot of dirt on your land. God has created plant life to be like this. That's what Moses is telling us here. Look again at verse 11. The seeds of the plants create more of the same kinds of plant. That's what it means according to their kinds. And each of these plants has been given the remarkable ability to sow its own seed. So even without humanity here, plant life is doing what plant life does according to its own nature. God doesn't need to command the plants to be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't command the plants to grow. It's just in their nature to do what they do. And they don't have a, a special blessing. They don't need a special blessing. It is in the nature of plant life in this, it, it, to, to self-sustain, to produce of itself. That's how God made it. This seeding and self-seeding over and over and over and over again. That's what plants do because God made them that way. So the earth is now formed. He's got plant life there for things to eat, as we'll see. And now we also have more testimony, don't we? God is ruler over all. He's to be feared. He's to be worshipped. He's to be trusted over all because he is the one who provides and sustains. And that's what we're seeing here. He's preparing the earth for you and me. Let's praise him close. Lord, it is a beautiful thing to see your creation power. 